We are going to focus on love, and we're going to focus on how our heart's deepest longings are satisfied in the love of God made known in sending His Son, Jesus, to rescue us. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. And there we'll have a chance to read a little bit about God's love and how He has made His love known. I don't know about you, but for me, my experience with humanity is basically this, is the one thing that I know which is universal. I've encountered lots of people from all over the world, and one of the universal things that connects all of us is this. We all gravitate towards stories that involve redemption. We love a good redemption story. It doesn't matter whether it's an oral story where somebody is just recounting something that they've experienced or heard, whether it's a story we've read or we watched in a movie or whatever. We love redemption stories, and that is universal for every human being. We just love redemption stories. Um, redemption stories are like this. You're introduced to a flawed character. They have something wrong with them. They are somehow, I don't know, broken, messed up, something like that. Then there's a series of circumstances that happens to the character, and eventually at the end of the story, this character who was once flawed but experienced all this stuff emerges as transformed and changed and renewed, and everyone lives happily ever after. You heard this story before? It's every story, like literally every story. And what's really interesting is why is it that the myth makers and the storytellers of our generation constantly put redemption as the primary storyline in every story they tell? Why is that? Because they know that every human being will be able to connect with it because that is the human experience. Every one of us knows that we and the people around us are flawed to varying degrees we're flawed, we're broken, we're messed up, things aren't right. And one of our heart's greatest desires is to see these flawed people, whether it's ourselves or the people we love, experience certain things that will ultimately result in them being transformed, them being repaired, fixed, restored, redeemed. We just want that. That is our heart's deepest longing. This time at Christmas, man, it is just full of these kind of stories. I don't know about you, but uh, I have a Netflix account, and so, you know, Heather and I are trying to watch, you know, we're like, hey, let's watch a Christmas movie. My goodness, they're making so many bad Christmas movies. I mean, so many Christmas movies. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, like, it's like the same story every single time. It's, it's between a man and a woman who fall in love. But at first it starts out like this good girl meets bad boy. Bad boy has rough edges over a series of circumstances. Bad boy with rough edges softens, and pretty soon good girl helps bad boy become good boy good girl, Mary's good boy, happily ever after, right? Okay, now you don't have to watch any of those movies. We, we know exactly what's going to happen. Or the other one is one of my favorites. Is during Christmas season, it's always the same kind of story. It's, it's this. You're introduced to a character who's like some curmudgeon, just kind of mean old, has no Christmas spirit. Just blah, 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 blah. And then over the period of the movie, certain circumstances happen, and then in the end, you find this curmudgeon, this person who wouldn't sing the carols, who didn't want to be a part of it, is now at the top of their lungs singing, and Christmas spirit has returned, and everyone lives happily ever after. You, you've heard this? You're probably like, I don't know if I have or not. No, you've seen the movie Elf. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Buddy's dad, right? And so what's really interesting is all of these stories regardless of whether or not they're seasonal stories, they have this plot line, and it is redemption. We love good redemption stories. We love that. But here's the reality. 
Every one of our hearts longs for a good redemption story. And we gravitate towards these things because we know this is our human experience. But what if the greatest redemption story you have ever heard doesn't occur to people out there, but it can happen to you? What if the greatest redemption story, you were the subject of it? What if it involves your life? I might be interested in that. And that's what Advent really is. It's a season for how we remember the greatest redemption story ever told. But it's not a redemption story that is a myth. It's a redemption story that took place in time and space. And it's a redemption story of how God in his great love has ransomed, redeemed a flawed humanity and will one day make them perfect. Oh, that's good. So in this third week of Advent, we're going to focus on love. And we're going to see how God's love comes to light. How it's made known. One of my favorite verses from the carol Silent Night reads like this. Silent night, holy night. Son of God, O love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face. With the dawn of redeeming grace. Even in our carols, we understand that the birth of Jesus is the dawning of redeeming grace. In the person of Jesus, that little baby, we look at his face and we see the glory of God. Redeeming grace. God's son has come. So let's read 1 John 4. I'm going to start in the back end of verse 8, the last three words there. We'll read verse 9 and 10, and then we'll make our way through. The Apostle John writes this, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, Father, our request of you as we gather in this place is that you would teach us. And in teaching us in your word and by your spirit, that you would meet with us, having come in this place it seems so ordinary. We just come to church. But, I got, but God, I just pray. Transform this ordinary thing into an extraordinary thing. God, transform our gathering together in this place into an encounter with the living God. By your spirit, illumine our minds and open our eyes that we may, as David wrote in the Psalms, we may behold wondrous things in your word. God, grant that we may see you as you really are. Grant in our imaginations we can behold baby Jesus, who is the dawning of redeeming grace. God, help us to perceive in our hearts and our minds the reason for why he came. And God, help us to see that all that you do is to reveal who you are. And what we learn in Jesus' coming is that you are love. So God, teach us now, I pray. For we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Before we unpack this text, there's two principles I need us to understand and know. This is kind of a guiding principle. These two things will guide us through the rest of the text. They will help us to understand a little bit about what we're talking about here. So the first principle is simply this. If you want to know what God is like, you merely have to look at what he does. And the reason why I say that is because in seeing what God does, we behold a little bit about who God is. And the reason that is true is because God does whatever flows out of who he is. And so if we want to know a little bit about like, you know, if you ask yourself the question, what is God like or, or who is God? We can come to an answer by simply looking at what God has done because we know something about the person of God through his actions. Likewise, you can know something about an artist by the art he makes. And so likewise, we see something about God in the way in which he acts. And this is a connection that's really, really vital. We see this in Exodus chapter 15. And I'm, I chose this verse on purpose. If you remember in the course of the book of Exodus, God's people are enslaved in Egypt and they need to be redeemed and they need to be brought out of that bondage. So God performs miracle after miracle. And eventually God brings his people out of Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea and they are brought to dry land on the other side. Meantime, meanwhile, Pharaoh's army is swallowed up in the waters and God provides deliverance and redemption. And the first thing that God's people do right afterwards, like they get on the dry land on the other side, the first thing that they do is this. They sing. And the reason that they sing is that is the proper response for us as human beings when we encounter a holy God who has redeemed us from our bondage. That is what is proper and right. That's why the book of Hebrews talks about how true worship is filled with gratitude. And the best way to express gratitude is not just to speak it, but to sing it. That's why we show up to church to sing, some of us. And so here's what the people of Israel sang. And I'm just going to pick verse 13 to show us this first principle. And they sang this. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And as that verse stays up there, I want you to notice the, the three things. There's three verbs that are up there. Guess not. And you follow the haves. And so we see this in the verse, you have led and you have redeemed and you have guided. Those are the three actions. That's what God did. But if you notice, what is the motivation? What is it that we come to know about God from what he has done? You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And so what we see is the connection between God's leading and God's redemption is the fact that God is steadfast in his love. To put it differently, because God is steadfast in his love, he has led and redeemed his people. And because God is strong, as it says, he guides them. And so you learn by God's actions a little bit about God's character and nature. So that if we just simply look at what God has done, we can make conclusions about what God is like. You tracking with me, church? So that's principle number one. Principle number two is this, that God does whatever he pleases. I know this doesn't sit right with us as human beings. We're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's he think he is? Well, he's God. <laughs> God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is exactly what Psalm 115 verse 3 says. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, 6 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, 
in the seas and all deeps. In other words, there is nothing that God does reluctantly. God does what brings pleasure to God. If it pleases God, God does it. And whatever God does is because it pleases him. You tracking with me? Put the two together and think about it. Whatever God does is because it pleases him. And whatever it is that he does out of his pleasure, that is introducing you to what God is like. So if we come to understand what God has done, we can know a little bit more about his character. And we also come to the conclusion that whatever he's done is for his pleasure. He didn't do it reluctantly. He did it joyfully. Now, when you take these two principles and you look at 1 John chapter 4, you are introduced to a God who is breathtaking. We read in verse 8, the last three words, God is love. God is love. How do you know that? Aside from John just declaring it, that God is love, how can you know if God truly is love? Well, the guiding principle is you can know if that is true by what God has done. So look for what God has done, and that will reveal to you a little bit about who God is, who God is what's he like. And so verse 9, here's what John does. He shows us why God is love. He says, in this, and this refers to whatever he's about to explain, he says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, made known among us was revealed to us. And how was it revealed or made known? God sent his only son into the world. God is love. How do we know? Because God acted in love. And what did he do? God sent his only son into the world. And God did so joyfully. It was God's pleasure to send God the son into the world. So how did God make his love known? By sending his son and by manifesting his love. And then you see this in verse 10 in the beginning. It says, and this is love. And so John's going to give us a second way that we can know God is love. He says, not that we have loved God, not that we took the initiative to love God and so then he responds to us, but it says that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not as if we loved God so tremendously and awesomely and we were just so worthy that God looks, <laughs> I can't do anything but send Jesus to rescue them. Look at them, they're awesome. Instead, God was the initiator. It was God who took the first step. God is the one who loves first. And out of God's love, the initiative that God took in love, he sent his son. Now, what did Jesus come to do? What was he sent for? And you can see this in John's text in verse 9 by the words, so that. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world, so that. So here's the purpose for which Jesus came. The first purpose so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. Jesus came, God's son came, that we might live through him. What does that mean? We'll get to it. But there's a second thing that Jesus came to do, and the reason for which he was sent, 
Verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, and here's the purpose, the propitiation for our sins. The reason why we know God is love is because he has proven himself to be loving in his action of sending his son to the, to the world. And what was his son sent to the world to do? To be a propitiation for our sins. And some of us will look and go, okay, um, dude, what is propitiation? <laughs> That's a big theological word. I mean, think about it. We have a hard time pronouncing it. You have to clap the syllables. Propitiation. You know what I'm saying? Well, we have to realize this. Brothers and sisters, do not check out mentally. And I don't know why it is, but many people even who are Christians in the church and stuff, we assume that in order to experience the emotional side of what it means to be a Christian, in order to experience the affections of God, in order to experience the love of God and to love God, for some reason we thought or we think in our minds that emotion is against intellect. That you can't be a thinking person and feeling person. You're either one or the other. And I would say, no. In fact, in this text here, look, propitiation is a technical theological word. And if you reverse engineer the logic, it says this, unless you understand the theological word propitiation, you will not be able to fully comprehend and understand the majesty of God's love. Which means you can't love an unknown thing. And I don't know why, but we sometimes people get in their heads like, no, 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 love. It, it's just, it can't, it, it, it's, it's unknown, it's mystery. And I was like, here's the thing, dude, don't ever love me in an unknowing way. How horrible would it be if we actually loved each other in an unknowing way? I don't care to know anything about you. I just love you. What? Think about it when you were single or if you're still single. You want to meet that special somebody. And what do you do after you meet that special somebody at the gym or whatever? You get to know that person. Why do you get to know that person if you're going to hopefully fall in love with them? Isn't love the antithesis to knowledge? No, it's its servant. You can't love what you don't know. And therefore, we have to know God. How do we know God? By what he does. What did he do? He sent Jesus. Why? To be propitiation. Theology. Woo-hoo. You tracking with me, church? All right. So two things. He came that we might live through him. Secondly, he came to be our propitiation. Now let me define propitiation. Propitiation is a theological word that means a sacrifice which is given to a deity in order to satisfy its wrath or judgment. And so in the case of Jesus, God the Father sent God the Son to be a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath and judgment. I don't know if you quite get what just happened. But God the Father sent God the Son to manifest His love And one of the ways that Jesus manifests the love of God is by satisfying the wrath of God. Which means the wrath of God 
is one way in which we appreciate the love of God. And if we say God is not wrath, God has no wrath, he, he can't, I can't, fat, my God was never be wrathful. Then I would simply say, then you don't even know the love of God. Because the love of God is made known through the wrath of God. What else could it possibly mean? Jesus is the propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God. And satisfying the wrath of God, that is how he shows the love of God. But if God has no wrath, then Jesus made no sacrifice. And if Jesus made no sacrifice, why did he come? And if he came for no reason, how do we know that's love? You came for no reason. What? You tracking with me, church? This is significant. What this means is John holds together the wonder and the beauty of both God's love and God's wrath. For if we downplay the wrath of God, we simultaneously diminish the love of God. And I so desperately want to behold and experience the love of God. Therefore, I won't diminish the wrath of God. But I will see Jesus as he was intended, namely this. Jesus is our wrath satisfier. Propitiation. Now, why was God the propitiation? Why did God the Father send God the Son as a propitiation? Why? Why did he have to do that? Why, why was that even necessary? And then the second one is, well, how do we live through him? So those are the two questions. Why is Jesus a propitiation and how do we live through him? Because that, that's the two purposes that John said for which he came and how we know the love of God. And in order to answer that, we're going to have to go to a very familiar section of Scripture. You're very familiar with it. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to answer these two questions. Why was God the Son sent to be a propitiation? And how do we live through Him? By looking at verses 16 to 18 and also verse 36. So I'm going to read it in its entirety. Then I'm going to circle back and I'm going to break it down according to its logic. How we should follow Jesus' logic in what he's talking about. Verse 16, John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We'll jump down to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you have a Bible like mine, it'll be all in black ink. But if you have one of those Bibles that has red ink, you know that this is Jesus talking here. And if it's Jesus talking, then we can be assured that it's true because Jesus speaks no falsehood. And we know Jesus speaks no falsehood because God raised him from the dead. And God is not in the business of raising heretics and liars from the dead. Jesus is true. And this is what he says. Now we're answering firstly the question, why did Jesus have to be a propitiation? And now we're going to break down the logic of what Jesus just said in these very familiar verses. And we're going to start in verse 18. And here we've realized that by default, by default, people are condemned. We see this in verse 18, B and C, which is the second and third part of the sentence. Jesus says, whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you notice by default what Jesus is saying is people are already condemned. They don't enter into a state of condemnation at some later point in their life. They're already condemned. They're already condemned by virtue of their unbelief. And since nobody is born believing, the conclusion is everyone is born condemned already. They're just condemned. That's the default starting position. Every human being is condemned by virtue of their existence. And then we, the next logical step is this. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. We see this in verse 17, A and B, the first two sections. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So that is not what Jesus came to do, condemn. But here is what Jesus came to do, in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus did not come to condemn, he came to save. I've had this verse quoted to me many times over the years where people say, man, the wrath of God, judgment, you're talking all of this nonsense, man. No, Jesus, it said, look at this, Jesus came not to condemn. Like, why are you so hateful? You keep talking about Jesus condemning. He didn't condemn. Jesus is pure love. And I would simply push back on that by asking this follow-up question. What does Jesus say about why he didn't come to condemn? What is Jesus saying in this text that helps us understand why he didn't come to condemn? And the answer is quite simply in verse 18b. He didn't come to condemn because everyone is already condemned. In our culture, we have this phrase that we say, I don't know if you say it, but I say it, you don't want to beat a dead horse. Why in the world would you, or another phrase is like, why are you reinventing the wheel? You guys know what I'm talking about? If everyone is already condemned, what's the point of Jesus coming to bring con condemnation? That's like a waste. It's already done. Everyone's already condemned. So he doesn't need to come to, to condemn. That's already, that, that work's already been done. So instead of Jesus coming to condemn, that's already been done. Everyone's already condemned. Instead, what Jesus came to do is to save. And what did he come to save them from? Jesus came to save people from their present predicament, which is called condemnation. And therefore, Jesus, God the Son, was sent by God the Father in order to execute a rescue plan. And what did he come to rescue? Sinners. And what did he come to rescue sinners from? Condemnation. Jesus is our rescuer. Now, how does he rescue? How does he save? And the answer is by his life, death, and resurrection. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean any old kind of blood. God has prescriptions for what kind of blood he accepts in order for forgiveness of sins to be enacted. It has to be pure, blameless, spotless, perfect, that kind of stuff. That's the only sacrifices that God would accept. And if Jesus was sent, if God the Father sent God the Son to be a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, 
then it means that God the Father sent God the Son so that by the blood of God the Son, there would be a sacrifice which would produce forgiveness. But that blood had to be perfect, spotless, and without blemish. That's the only kind of blood God accepts. And so what we learn from this is that God the Father sent God the Son to be the necessary sacrifice to bring about forgiveness. And the necessary sacrifice is none other than Jesus' own blood, which is perfect, spotless, unblemished. Because throughout his entire life, Jesus did not sin even once. And through his sinless life, he has secured the perfection and righteousness that everybody needs. And not only that, but then Jesus went to a cross. And by being crucified on the cross, he took upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God in order that the wrath of God may not fall upon you. And after he was crucified as the curse for sin, Jesus' body was taken down and laid into a tomb. And the question remained, did Jesus do enough? Was his life and his death sufficient? Was his blood pure enough? And we get the answer emphatically on the third day because Jesus rose from the dead. Whenever you get a check and you take it to the bank and you endorse it on the back and then you turn it in, there's always a time period where you have to wait for that check to clear. Well, there had to be a time period waiting for that check to clear from Friday to Sunday. Brothers and sisters, the check is cleared. The debt is paid. The transaction is complete. Christ is risen. And as a payment for sin, accepted fully by God the Father, evidenced by Jesus' resurrection, we now know that Jesus' blood was indeed perfect, and it did, in fact, do everything necessary to rescue sinners from their present predicament of condemnation. But if you notice what kind of people Jesus died for, remember he said, uh, John said, It wasn't that you loved God and that's why Jesus came. It's that God loved you and that's why he came. Not only that, but we see that everyone is already condemned. The Apostle Paul says Jesus died for the ungodly. So it's not as if Jesus was sent, God the Son was sent to a people who are worthy, to a people who had their act together, to a people who are filled with faith and people who love God. God the Father sent God the Son to a people who were in the midst of rebellion, faithlessness, who were condemned already because of their sin and unbelief, who had nothing that warranted God to do this. They were undeserving, unworthy. In other words, God, motivated by his love, gave a gift of his one and only Son, and we call that grace. It's a gift to those who don't deserve it. So by the action of God the Father sending God the Son, what do we learn about God? That he is full of love, that he is full of grace, that he is full of mercy, that he is full of truth, and that he is forgiving. But we also learn that God is holy and God is wrath. And we can't diminish any of those. They all go together. What that also tells us is this, brothers and sisters, and even those who don't identify as a Christian here this morning, you have to realize this. Everyone, because we're condemned already, we are all 
condemned and unworthy. And it's not as if we need to somehow make our way up to God and then be saved. It's the reality that God, in his love and grace, made his way down to us. And he came to us with salvation in his hands. To an unworthy, condemned people. And he says this, Jesus says this in verse 18, the first section. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever simply receives this gift of grace by faith will be rescued from their present predicament of being condemned by God. You will have the wrath of God removed from you because of Jesus. That is indeed what he came to do. All you have to do is believe it. And because God is love, he manifests or he makes known this love when God the Father sends God the Son in human likeness to do all that is necessary to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. Any who believe this are saved. Now it's important as we're in uh, Advent time, we think about baby Jesus. He, he was born a baby, a human baby. Why did God the Son have to become a baby, a human being? We learn in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, but why? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children, that is you and I, we share in flesh and blood. That is what we have in, in mutuality. That is what we have in common. We're all made of flesh and blood. He himself being Jesus, likewise, Jesus partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of the death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, Jesus took on flesh and blood. Why? Because you and I have flesh and blood. Athanasius in the fourth century, he taught this. He says, whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. In other words, whatever it, it was that God was going to redeem, he had to assume. If Jesus was going to redeem humanity, he had to become human in order to do it. But because Jesus did become a human being, because Jesus is flesh and blood, he is able to redeem those who are flesh and blood. Meaning this, and this is a marvel, God the Son became our brother in order that we might become his children. Are you kidding me? God the Son became our brother that we might become his children. No wonder why we sing this song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's why we've entitled our choir performance, Behold. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Wow. And we read verse 36, whoever believes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus came that we might live through him. How do we live through him? By faith. If we believe in the Son sent from the Father as our life and our propitiation, we have eternal life. 
Jesus goes on to say, however, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus came that he would remove the wrath of God from us because all of us are condemned already. But if you refuse to take hold of that gift of God's grace in Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, then you must be forewarned. What you're choosing is to allow the wrath of God to remain on you. Remember, all of us long for a good redemption story. And if we're being honest, we would love to be the subject of a great redemption story. We recognize we're all flawed. We recognize our own shortcomings. We recognize that we are sinners. We recognize that we don't have it all together. That's evidenced by the fact that many of us live in guilt and we're constantly battling shame every day of our life. In part, that's evidenced by the fact that we love to hide from one another. We don't really want other people to know what we really are because we're scared to death. If they truly knew who we were, they would not embrace us. They would reject us. And so we long, and we long. And what we long for is redemption. What we long for is restoration. What we long for is healing. Well, God has introduced a set of circumstances in which those of us who are flawed characters with all of our brokenness and all of our disease and all of our debilitating issues and sin, through these circumstances, God promises us, you can be redeemed. You can be renewed. Believe. Believe. And the longing heart can be satisfied. One of my favorite sections of Scripture that reveals what God is like through how, what he does is in John 13. John 13. So if you want to turn there, John 13. This is a, a very popular section of scripture. It's about Jesus when he washes the disciples' feet. But I want to introduce you to this pattern that we see in scripture. This pattern that is so important to redemption and to producing hope and, and love in our own hearts. This is the time where Jesus is about to institute the Lord's Supper. On the night he was betrayed in the upper room, it's on the eve of when he was going to be handed over, where he'd be crucified and eventually resurrected. It says this in John 13, 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And to express the love that he has for these disciples, he's going to do something and through his doing this action, he is revealing who he is and what he's like. So what he's going to do in verse 2 through 5 is he's going to wash their feet. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, you see that that's the pattern. God the Son came down, and He's returning. God became flesh and dwelt among us, but He's returning. That's the pattern. And so Jesus, sitting at His privileged place at the supper, He rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments, and He took a towel, that is a, a servant's apron, 
He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. This is the most humble, menial service that is possible in this ancient culture. This is the most disgusting act that you could do. And Jesus was at his privileged position during the supper. He stands and he derobes. He takes instead his servant's apron, ties the bow, gets onto his knees, and one by one begins to take the disciples' disgusting, wrangly old, I don't know, toenails and feet and begins to clean them. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, notice it doesn't say that he took off his apron. He put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, and he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And what Jesus does is give us a pattern of what is called humiliation and exaltation. God the Son became a man, and then he was returning to the Father. Jesus was at this supper, and he had his privileged place, but he arose from that table, took off his outer garments, and then he humbled himself, taking on an apron, and then began to serve the disciples. And once he had completed the task, he doesn't take off his apron. He merely stands back up, puts his robe back on, and he returns to his privileged position where he was before. And it reminds us of this pattern of, of Jesus, how he came from the Father, descended, served, and ascended again. Paul records it for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you see it? Jesus in his privileged position as the word he condescended, he came down, he derobed his glory, and instead he enrobed himself with frail humanity, and he stooped to the lowest of lows, and he served the fallen creation, not merely by becoming a baby, but also succumbing in humility to the point of the most embarrassing, shameful thing, hanging naked on a cross. But that wasn't all that Jesus came to do. He was dead and buried. But he didn't rise by taking off his humanity. Instead, he kept his humanity on. And the humanity he had was exalted humanity, resurrected humanity, glorified humanity. And so he ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is the pattern of redemption. 
that all who are weak and all who are frail and all who are lowly and all who are broken and all who are sinful, all who are ravaged by disease, all who are filled with shame and guilt, all those who know their guilt before a holy God who are in the throes of humiliation and they're longing for circumstances to bring about their redemption. The pattern is this. If you will believe in Jesus, condescended and exalted, that you too can not only live like him, but you will rise like him. God the Father sent God the Son so that every wrong will be made right. So that he, in his resurrection, can utter these words to us quite simply. As I rose, so too you will rise. So when we imagine baby Jesus, humble, frail, lying in a manger, we have to realize that the dawning of redeeming grace is upon us. But that's not all baby Jesus would do. He would stoop even lower. As Matthew 10 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus rose in love. God the Father has sent God the Son to put things right. The longing in every human heart for redemption is ultimately satisfied in Jesus who condescended, took on flesh, served humanity through his life, death, and resurrection and is exalted in order to redeem all those who would believe. By looking to Jesus, we can take hold of life. So even today, if you are struggling with sin, you cannot overcome shame, plagued with guilt, ravaged by pain and sorrow, diagnosed with disease, death looming. You can face all of those things knowing that there's coming a day where redemption, dawning in baby Jesus, will be brought to completion at Christ's return. And there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more death, no more injustice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but they would have eternal life. So... If you're here today and you don't identify as a Christian, I want to make sure I'm crystal clear about this. You are condemned already. The wrath of God is on you. But Jesus was sent to rescue you. And if you will embrace him, 
He will deliver you from judgment. And he will rescue you from the condemnation that is already on you. All you have to do is trust that that is what he came to do. And he came to do it. He completed the task and is finished. That's all. And so if you're here today and you want to no longer have the condemnation and the wrath of God upon you, you just simply have to believe. And so I want to pray. And if you want that to be true of you today, then pray with me. Father, I know that you are holy, that I am condemned already, and that the wrath of God is upon me. But I now know that in love, you sent Jesus to rescue you, to free me, that I might be forgiven, and that I might have life. I believe. And Father, I as a pastor want to pray for these people. God, may you show them the depths of their despair if they do not choose you and lift them up into the blissful assurance that you love them should they choose to believe. God, thank you for displaying your love that you've rescued such rascals like us and you have made us your children. So God, in this Christmas season, may we always be filled with joy, not for what awaits us under a Christmas tree, but for what awaits us in glory, resurrection, glory. God, thank you for sending Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.